Can you recall the time when you made the transition from poet to songwriter? Um, let's see. I started singing professionally, that is for pin money, in art college in Calgary for $15 a night and traveling a little bit up to Edmonton. At that time, my repertoire was mostly found songs. We would all skim through Sing Out magazine. And the trouble with being on a folk scene, even in Calgary where there wasn't that many of us, um, was that the certain artists like Peter Elbling was the resident folk singer in Calgary when, when I arrived. And he was a bank of folk songs. And all of the songs that I had learned in Saskatoon before I came fell under his territory. Oh, you can't sing those songs. Those are my songs, see? So eventually a person, in order to have an original repertoire, because everybody had claims to these songs that were floating around, almost had to write. So it was there that I wrote my first song. It was something about trains, I think. Um, and I played it for Peter Albling, and he didn't seem too much impressed with it. And I don't even remember much about it now. Um, so the first attempt was kind of like the first waffle. You use it to warm up the pan, you throw it out, you know. Um, Did you have some poems stockpiled that you tried to put some music to? Well, the poetry that I'd written as a kid wouldn't, wouldn't have made songs. Like I had one, I was writing a lot in blank verse, um... I'll give you an example. I wrote a poem in, when I was 16 or 17 called The Fishbowl, which was about Hollywood. And it went, um, The fishbowl is a world reversed where hooks that dangle from the bottom up reel down their catch on gilded bait. Pike, pickerel, bass, the common fish ogle through distorting glass. See only glitter, glamour, gaiety, fog up the bowl with lusty breath. Lunge towards the bait and miss and weep for fortune lost. Envy the goldfish, why? His bubbles breaking round the rim while silly fishes faint for him and say, Look here, I think he winked his eye at me. <laughs> yeah, you, you couldn't really put it into a, a song, you know. So, I mean, I, I had oiled the, the wheels of introspective poetic reflection, you know. But the idea of singing them hadn't occurred to me. And... Um, when I got to Toronto, there were 18 functioning folk clubs, but the same problem prevailed. You know, everybody had dibs on certain songs. And uh, I remember when a singer came through from the States named Hamilton Camp, and I'd been hanging around with him and Ian Tyson for a couple of days. And Hamilton had a new Bob Dylan song. I was not a Bob Dylan fan at that time. I thought he was imitative of Woody Guthrie and not particularly original um, uh, in an opinion which I voiced loudly and, and to much flack, you know, in coffee houses at the time. But I heard this song, which was unrecorded at that time, called Tambourine Man. And, and being in Hamilton's company with the usual people on the scene not being around, I tried to memorize this song. I thought, if I learn this song, this song will be mine on this particular turf. Um, Anyway, I, I learned most of it, but there was a lot to learn just by sitting in an audience and hearing it twice, even taking notes. And I missed part of it, and, but I talked about it constantly. And one night some people said to me, you know that song you were talking about? Well, there's an American folk singer upstairs and playing it. I was playing in the cellar of a little club because I was non-union. So I rushed upstairs to hear Mr. Tambourine Man played by Chuck Mitchell, 
and he had completely rewritten parts of it. So my immediate introduction to him was, you know, in conflict. Why did you change these lines, I said to him, you know. He changed wait only for my boot heels to go wandering to something like, you know, wait only for my sneakers, or I don't know, because he didn't wear boots. And I was quite offended. This was the beginning of my relationship with Chuck Mitchell, who kind of kidnapped me, carried me across the border. And it was there in that climate. I fell into a hotbed of educated people who believed that intelligence was groomed in that manner and not innate. And um, something then stirred in me and I began to write.
in... It's interesting that when you did record your first album, it was produced by David Crosby. How did that come about? Well, David I met in Miami, well, in Coconut Grove, in a little coffee house there. He'd come, he had just quit the birds and was putting together a beautiful schooner, polishing it up, you know, and um, he came in to hear me and liked the music and um, later when I got my first recording contract, you see I was, I looked like a folk singer but David realized that there was something else there. The end of folk music had come and there was a new fad called folk rock. So what he was afraid they would do, which they would have done, is to try and make me, in the, in the manner of record companies, to make an apple out of an orange, they would enforce uh, rock and roll onto this music, and it would have been premature, it wouldn't have married, it would have been a disaster. He had the insight to see that, because if you're going to sell out, usually kids sell out at the beginning. They, in that, they enslave themselves right at the onset. And I had nicely dodged slavery. I'd refused a lot of recording contracts because they were, in fact, slave labor. Would have output three albums a year, for instance, of original material. You know, you would dry up. That's, you know, you make a desert if you try and get three crops off a piece of land in that short space of time. Um, but at this point, I felt ready to record. I had the material for three albums. And he said, this is what we're going to do, he said. It's going to be, as, there's going to be so little added. I'm going to tell them that I'm going to produce you, but then I'm not going to produce you at all. If we add anything, it'll be so minimal, it'll be like a girl walking down the street in a pair of blue jeans, and as she goes by, you say, was there a little lace on the side of her blue jeans? That little, you know. So he was very good in keeping the company at bay and of course the record came out it resembled that which had been and not that which had come but it sold well and from then on they kind of left me alone
Tony, it's interesting that Stephen Stills plays bass on your first album and there's been a lot of talk about the fact that you actually introduced Graham Nash to Stephen Stills and David Crosby and instigated the group. Is that true? Um, I think so. It's a long time ago. You know, I met them all independent of one another. I met Graham Nash in Ottawa. I met David Crosby in Miami. I met Neil Young when he was a kid still living at home in Winnipeg. Um, so all of us had different migrational patterns. Stephen I didn't know. He was the last one. By the time I met Stephen, I met him through Neil because they were in the Buffalo Springfield, which was kind of defunct at the time that I came to California. Neil moved from Winnipeg to Toronto. He left home after I left. By the time he got to Toronto, I was living in Detroit. Uh, then I went to New York and he went to California and the Buffalo Springfield was founded and they were already on the radio by the time I got to California. They'd been on the radio and they were already kind of um, earning a living by being ghost players for the monkeys. They were, they were having a hard go of it at that time. Um, Crosby had a house there. Um, I think I introduced Neil to Crosby, and I can't remember how Graham came in on it. He traveled through with the Hollies, I know that, um, and was staying at David's house. So I re-met him at David's house, but how he got to David's house, I can't remember that part. <laughs> Your most successful album in the early days, I guess, was Ladies of the Canyon. It had a big hit song with Big Yellow Taxi, which also did very well in Australia. But I suppose the song that's haunted you the most from that era is the song Woodstock, which you wrote. But you didn't actually go to Woodstock, did you? We, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, had just performed publicly for the first time. I think we played, and, and I was opening to them. Um, we played in L.A. first, I believe, and then in Chicago. Um, Chicago on a Saturday night. In the following Sunday, we were all supposed to appear at Woodstock. We got as far as the airport on that Sunday with David Geffen and Elliot Roberts, who were, you know, our managerial team, when we discovered that it was, like, the largest, second largest city in the state at that time, and it was also kind of a national disaster area, there was the problem of getting us in and getting us out. The following day, Monday, I was supposed to appear on a television show out of New York. So their concern was, we can get, the, the plane was there to take us, we can get in, but will we be able to get out in time, you know, as the festival ends and the evacuation begins. So it was decided between Elliot and David that the boys could go, but I couldn't. So David and I went back <clears throat> to his apartment and we watched everything about it on the news so I felt like those kids it put me in contact with those kids who wanted to go but were kept from going by parents or whatever you know and I'm glad that that happened because I would have never had the same perspective if I was backstage in that ego riddled uh, curtained off area you know I mean I think I I, I had a different it offered me a different vantage point.
Joni Mitchell and the song that she wrote called Woodstock, later recorded by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, that appeared on her Ladies of the Canyon album of 1970. The two previous tracks were both from her first album, the self-titled one, released in 1967 and produced by David Crosby. We heard Night in the City and a song she wrote about the breakup of her marriage to Chuck Mitchell, one called I Had a King. In the second part of our interview with Joni Mitchell, we'll progress into the mid-70s with her, where she had some very exciting albums that were jazz-influenced and on which she recorded with the great bass guitarist Jaco Pistorius. The next phase of your career gave you great commercial success with Blue and For the Roses, and you were described at this time as being a confessional singer-songwriter. Did it prove to be therapeutic for you to be able to talk about things that were obviously very personal on your records? Well, what had happened is that I had introverted. You know, introversion is the antithesis of being a performer. You know, I mean, to be a performer, you have to be an extrovert. Introversion is the realm of poetry, but not performing. So here we had a conflict between two aspects of my job. Um, The introspection pretty much sealed off my external life experience and left me only with internal life experience um so anything that 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 was coming out of me was coming from the inside of me it was sort of a shocking transformation to me too and at first i'd see it on the page i'd say you know oh you can't be you can't say this about yourself like in in the pop arena then i'd say but you know it's valid human experience this is how the debate went it's valid human experience i've never really seen anything like this written especially in the pop context i can't abort it so in order to justify it i would say this is good this is good this will help because one of the things that i couldn't stand was the phenomenon seekers those people who rush forward who are so impressed with success and stardom not with anything you do you know this will help i said to adjust things, it'll help to separate the wheat from the chaff. The, the, the mere phenomenal seekers will be disgusted by it, you know, like because it's anti-popular behavior. And those people of like mind will come forward and will get things in perspective. Let's, you know, let's tell them who you're worshipping, you know, because this tendency to worship is sort of stupid. Joni, is it disappointing for you that people tend to expect you to always be the confessional type of songwriter? and want to push your current work into the background in expectations of you being like you were uh, mid-career? It really, yeah, it is annoying to me. Um, Luckily, not all people. There are people afoot who understand that, um, that in the life of an artist, you know, there are changes of perspective. So they don't hold me, you know, to the role of Ophelia for the rest of my life, you know. Um... But those who do, I feel this about, either they have not lived a full life uh, or, you know, or they see music as a vehicle for um, reflecting, you know, know, like uh, for getting back their youth, which again, they haven't had a very full life. Um, I just have to proceed in spite of them. The wind is in from Africa Last night I couldn't sleep Oh, you know it sure is hard 
got to leave here, Carrie, but it's really not my home. My fingernails are filthy, I've got beach tar on my feet, and I miss my clean white linen and my fancy French cologne. Oh, Carrie, get out your cage. These friends of mine Let's have another round For the bright red devil Who keeps me in this tourist town Come on, Carrie Get out your Carrie, get out your becoming much more experimental with your music. I think Hegira is a good example of that. And that was the first of your collaborations with the bass guitarist Jaco Pistorius, who had um, an indelible effect on your music. How did you two first meet, and why did you want him particularly to be involved in your music? Well, prior to meeting Jaco, um, I had been newly introduced to the experience of working with an expanded palette with with other musicians and while the first collaboration was very exciting it was very um it was very court and spark that is um most of the playing came from existing chords in the skeleton of what i played it was very added very carefully there was any counter melody that was added i would sing to tom scott he would transcribe it there were a few pockets of free expression um there were there's one song where part of the horn stack arrangements are mine and they're kind of eccentric and part of them are tom scott's in the same song and they are more 
normal horn writing. Um, so there were, like I say, little pockets of free expression. It was my first experience in guiding musicians, and I was clumsy at first in getting what I wanted from them without bruising their spirit. You know, like, it's hard for, for anyone to direct a musician, but, but men being directed by a woman get intolerant quicker. So there was um, a lot to learn. Um, through in the coming of the next record I got to give you some background building up to it I gave my musicians a freer reign as a result on the hissing of summer lawns in some places there was more jazz expression in that I allowed them to express more of their own melodic opinion and they came out of the jazz idiom therefore the colors that they added to my colors were more idiomatically jazz as a result some people were offended and said you know, Joni's gone in a jazz direction. Really what I was doing was giving greater freedom of expression to my players and learning along the way. In the process of learning, I learned that, you know, what they did was nice, but that I had strong opinions. So I began then to try and guide them closer to what I wanted. One of the things I wanted a drummer to do was to take the pillow out of his kick drum. Couldn't stand that dead sound. And the bass players then didn't change their strings. It was fashionable that they play with these dead strings, so there was no roundness of tone. So what I was craving was a more Caribbean sound, not, not unlike what Police did when they first came out. When I heard Police's first projects, I went, that's what I've been trying to get out of. You know, it was a slacker head. Now, with the bass, I was trying to get the guy to get more round tone, to not necessarily anchor, you know, just play the root of the chord. Um, the bass part always, while necessary, always sounded dull. If you isolated and listened to it by itself, it wasn't musical. Why couldn't it be more musical than that, I asked myself. You know, that, that each part, um, rather than being merely supportive, would have a chance as a color to express itself and then go back into a supportive role. So trying to direct people in this direction was nearly impossible. Um, and so I had to be satisfied with, you know, getting them as far along towards this desire as possible. When Jocko came along, I think in the process of describing what I wanted, someone said, I know a guy in Florida who might interest you. And so Jocko was sent for. And when John Guerin heard him, he said, oh, you must love Jocko. He hardly ever plays the root of the chord. Um, he was, you know, I felt like I'd been trying to invent Jocko for a couple of years, and there he was. You know, so the ideas were in the air. It was time for the instrument to do some other things, and, and uh, innovators on instruments are rare. Miles changed the horn. You know, um, Jocko changed the bass. Um, it was great working with him. Plus, he pushed himself up in the mixes really hot, you know, like, and he couldn't pull, you pull him down, he pushed himself up. He was a very uh, dominant male. <laughs> We just come from such different sets of circumstance I'm up all night in the studios and you're on the freeway 
where a local band was playing. Locals were up kicking and shaking on the floor. The next thing I know, that coyote's at my door. He pins me in a corner, he won't take no. He drags me out on the dance floor and we're dancing close and slow. Now he's got a woman at home. He's got another woman down the hall. He seems to want me anyway. Why'd you have to get so drunk and leave me on that way? You just picked up a hitcher, a prisoner out the white lines on the freeway. I look a coyote right in the face. On the road to Balgeny, near my old hometown, he went running through the whisker weed, chasing some prize down, and a hawk was playing with him. Coyote was jumping straight up and making passes, and those same eyes just like yours, under your dark glasses, privately probing the public rooms, peeking through keyholes and numbered doors, where the players lick their wounds and take their temporary lovers and their pills and powders to get them through this passion play. No regrets, Coyote. I just get off a boat. You just pick up a hitcher, a prisoner on the white lines on the freeway. coffee shop. He's staring a hole in his scrambled eggs. He picks up my scent on his fingers while he's watching the waitress's legs. He's too far from the Bay of Fundy, from Appaloosas and eagles and tides, air-conditioned cubicles and the carbon ribbon rides are spilling it out so clear. Either he's gonna have to stand and fight or take off out of I tried to run away myself, to run away and wrestle with my ego. This, this flame, you put here in this Eskimo, in this hitcher, in this prisoner of the fine white lines, of the white lines on the free. Pistorius, you recorded last, I think, on Don Juan's Reckless Daughter with him. Then we didn't hear much about him at all until his death last year. I saw him towards the end. I'd lost track of him. You know, I'd heard all sorts of stories of him taking off his clothes and diving into fountains in Japan and things. He was always high-spirited and a bit of a nature boy, um, even in his teens, and he married young. He was nothing for him to sleep on the beach with his family. You know, I mean, he was very earthy. Um, and I like that about him. He also had a, 
He was the only person that I knew at that time that thought Thus Spake Zarathustra was funny. You know, Nietzsche had a bad name because Hitler was a fan, you know, like, and so whenever I go Nietzsche, people either think you're like this immense, you know, like highbrow or a Nazi or something, you know. So Jocko was the first person who had absorbed it and enjoyed it in the same way I did. So we had a lot of laughs around um, Nietzschean philosophy. And then, like I say, I lost track of him. But when I'd hear the outlandish things that he was doing, I just took it to be high-spiritedness and nothing too serious until one night I came out of an art opening in New York City and I saw a little crayon sign across the street, Puerto Rican place, Jaco Pastorius tonight. So I said to the people I was with, let's go, we were going to eat, let's go eat over there, let's go see Jocko. I found him at the bar, really in a terrible state of depression. I'd never seen Jocko in a state of depression before. Um, he was so far inside himself that when he saw me, when I said his name, it took him a long kind of time for, to re-enter. You know, by looking into his eyes, it was like coming back from a long way away. Um, then he threw his arms around me like, like he was drowning, you know. And I felt the weight of where he was at. Then his mood changed radically, and he went crying through the restaurant, I mean shouting through the restaurant, in a kind of a euphoric state, you know, how I was the baddest, this, and, you know, I was embarrassed, you know, I was embarrassed for both of us. Um, and we ended up jamming that night, but he couldn't follow, he was a trickster and he kind of short-sheeted me in various ways made it impossible for me to play well laughing at me you know and the audience was forgiving and said it's okay to make mistakes and rather than expose him I said look you I'm gonna quit playing now he's gonna lead and I'm gonna follow him because I thought it's easier he can't follow me because he has no will to do so so I'll let him take off he can go anywhere he wants and I'll just jam you know just scat along so we did that, but it was a kind of heartbreaking experience. And he projected some of his strangeness onto me. He's, he kind of accused me of not having assimilated my many selves, <laughs> which was kind of a perfect description of him at that moment. And uh, it was a sad uh, evening. And then shortly after that, I heard that he was gone. That evening, I saw like how he poked at disaster, you know, I was talking to a black singer who was singing with him. It was a bit of a stand-up comic blues singer. Had a really great street sense of humor. And he kept saying to him, you know, um, stay away from them niggers, Joni. You know, like, uh, you don't know niggers like I do, you know, and all this stuff, you know. And the guy was tolerant. But, you know, if you were to get... Yeah, he was pushing his luck at the end really hard. There was a moon and a street lamp I didn't know I drank such a lot Till I pissed a tequila and a corner The full length of the parking lot Oh, I talked too loose Again I talked too open and free I pay a high price for my open talking Like you do for your silent mystery Come and talk to me Please talk to me Talk to me, talk to me 
about landscapes. I'm not above gossip, but I'll sit on a secret where honor is at stake. Or we could talk about power, about Jesus and Hitler and Howard Hughes or Charlie Chaplin's movies or Bergman's Nordic blues. Please just talk to me. Any old thing you choose, just come and talk to me. Mr. Mystery, come to me. You could talk like a fool, I'd listen You could talk like a sage Anyway, the best of my mind All goes down on the strings and the page That mind picks up all these pictures Still gets my feet up to dance Even though it's covered with keloids From the swings and arrows of outrageous romance I stole that from Willie the Shake You know Either a borrower or a lender fee Romeo, Romeo Talk to me Is your silence that golden? Are you comfortable in it? Is it the key to your freedom Or is it the bones on the prison? Are you gagged by your ribbon? Joni Mitchell, who's our special guest tonight, and a song called Talk To Me from her 1977 album Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. The previous track was Coyote from her Hajira album of a year earlier, both with backing from the late Jaco Pastorius, who was playing bass guitar. And the first track in that bracket was Carey from her 1971 album Blue. On September the 12th, 1987, Jaco Pistorius was bashed by a bouncer at a bar in Florida. Nine days later, he died from his injuries. He was 35. In the later years of his life, Pistorius suffered from manic depression and alcoholism. His condition was such that work was hard to get, resulting in Pistorius living in the streets as a derelict. His bizarre behaviour, which you heard Joni Mitchell talking about tonight resulted in Pistorius being arrested a number of times on various charges and the man who killed Jaco Pistorius has been charged himself with second-degree murder. 
Let's go back now and talk to our guest Joni Mitchell about some tracks on her latest album Chalk Mark in a Rainstorm. There are some very exciting moments on your new album Chalk Mark in a Rainstorm. I like the way you cast different voices from outside singers for characters in some of the songs. My Secret Place is a good example where the voices of yourself and Peter Gabriel blend so beautifully. Did Peter just happen to be available when you were recording that track? Yeah. I mean, originally, um, I, you know, I didn't really know how it was going to shape up. It was just um, voice and guitar. And I thought this would be great to add background voices. It started first with background voices. Then I had him take a couple of passes at the vocal and it was only then that I realized that if I wove back and forth between the two voices, it would give the, a better intimacy to the song and more appropriate to what the song was saying than anything. You know, that, that a man and a woman in the beginning tentative part of a romance, um, where they're so sensitive and so respectful and so alert to one another, do tend to kind of have one mind you know, going, and so it illustrates that pretty good. Thank you. 
Another really interesting track is Dance and Clown, where you've cast Billy Idol as the bully and Tom Petty as Jesse, the fellow that um, Billy Idol picks on. Why those two singers particularly? Well, um, Billy, Billy is perfect for the role. I mean, I can't think of anybody that would be any better. Um, and Petty, you know, uh, worked, he was part of the same stable in Elliot Re Roberts' office, and the part was so small, I, I offered it with great apology, you know, like to him. But he got into the spirit and thought it was fun, you know. So once I'd put Billy's voice in, I had to have a male voice to play the other part, you know. So I said, Tom, it's a, a modest little part, but you've got to kind of play um, this this kid that, that Billy Idol is picking on. But, you know, I mean, you don't get beat up in it or anything, you know, you save face. Dancing clown 
top nice. You hear the swoosh of jungle blades and the crackle of for their nice. Hot death. there a real killer Kyle that you talk about in Beat of Black Wings? There was a real killer Kyle, but the content of the song is much more general than, than the dialogue between him and I. Um, I, I just, he, Killer Kyle was um, a kid that came back pretty shattered from in, during the Vietnam War. I used to play for soldiers in Fort Bragg during during the Vietnamese War, which gave me a very good perspective because everybody I knew in the village was a, was a draft dodger. So having contact with young gung-ho servicemen was a balancing thing for me. So I never got that far into the hippie point of finger because I knew, I knew the kill a commie for God mentality existed in some very nice people, <coughs> deluded people, <clears throat> but not to be angrily, you know, wagging at them, you know, like they, believe me, they learned, they came back shattered, you know, so there had to be some empathy for that also. The song is really not so much his story, which was much more specifically the Vietnam War, but a general story of a young soldier in a disillusioned state, could be any war. Thank you. 
I could just finish our conversation tonight by thanking you very much for your time and also to thank you on behalf of all your Australian fans for the wonderful music you've given us over a long, long time. Let's hope you can come back and play for us again very soon. Hoping to come back in the spring. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks very much, Johnny. Okay, Bill.